Hello and welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host Samuel Davies. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Ian McQuillan, founder and director of Regare, the fundraising think tank. We talk about professional fundraising and the profession of fundraising. We speak about the difference between these two definitions and why both deserve consideration. We touch on ethics in fundraising, professional qualifications and some of the sources for fundraisers who wish to develop their own knowledge. There is a lot here for those of you who are fundraisers or seek to understand fundraising and the challenges that the sector has between delivering for the cause and ensuring that funds required to do this are raised efficiently and ethically. This is a fascinating and thought-provoking chat that I'm sure you'll enjoy. So without further ado, here is Ian McQuillan speaking with me about the profession of fundraising. I'm delighted to be joined today by Ian McQuillan, Director of Regare. Ian, welcome to Charity Chats. Thank you, Claire, to be here. We really appreciate you coming on the show. I've been following your work for some time and uh, read a lot of your articles in uh, the likes of Third Sector. And uh, so it's been something we've really wanted to get you on the show for some time. So thanks ever so much for joining us. Um, maybe we could start by explaining to the audience kind of what your background is and the work that you do now in supporting the charity sector. Yeah, so my background originally was um, journalism. So I was a journalist for the best part of 20 years, and I had a career that took me around lots of magazines. I worked in a waste management, um, edited a waste management industry magazine, a cricket magazine, a police service magazine, a video magazine, a music industry magazine, worked all over the place. Um, Every job took me to a different sector. And then in 2001, I arrived in fundraising, editing professional fundraising magazine, and I kind of immediately felt at home there. I kind of felt like I'd found my sector, my people. I loved it here. I loved the people. I loved the ideas that were going around. Um, and so I, I kind of, I, I edited that for a while. And then I worked on with Jenny Turner at Turner PR and com, comms. And then I was head of communications at the PFRA. But throughout my time in um, fundraising, a lot of the other sectors I worked in, um, a lot of them had a lot of, it wasn't just about doing their jobs. It was also about the critical thinking and the critical issues behind the jobs. And from a, almost my first day in fundraising, I felt that, that we didn't always give that due attention. And a lot of professions and sectors, they have think tanks that are doing this. And I felt we needed a think tank. So it had been a long-term aim of mine to set something up. So in 2014, I did establish Regari, which is the fundraising think tank. And so I've been doing that since 2014 as the director. And the idea behind Regaria rationale is that we are the uh, the bridge that links the academic and the um, the academic and professional practice arms of the fundraising profession we're trying to look at the knotty problems we have the difficult uh, issues that we have and try and synthesize new solutions from those from bringing in ideas from all over mm-hmm. not just fundraising and philanthropy ideas in the academy but you know looking at moral philosophy and behavioral science evolutionary theory um, anthropology places like that and see if we can actually generate new solutions so we're really trying to rethink fundraising by um, building a better knowledge base a critical knowledge base and getting fundraisers to better value that knowledge that they have and think about those issues and, and in the last seven years, so you started Regare in 2014, in the last seven years, um, I mean, I've been in fundraising all of that time, and, and it feels to me like there's been huge changes. Uh, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but from 2015, we've had all sorts of very difficult year for fundraising, certainly lots of uh, negative coverage in the press and, 
and mm. uh, and and lots of you know scenarios and uh, cases where you know fundraising um, wasn't working very well. I mean, over that seven years, have you seen a big difference in the work that Regare has been doing, and and how you've been looking at fundraising? Well, there have been changes in the way the prof- the profession, and you, I know we're going to talk about whether fundraising is or is not a profession later. So I'll, I'll use the the term the term profession, but. There have been changes in the way that the profession is structured. There have been changes in the way that fundraising is done. But there are also um, some some commonalities within that that haven't changed. So, for example, we still don't have a high degree of ethical literacy in fundraising. You know, there's not a lot of ethics taught. There's not a lot of ethics written about. And a lot of the time when fundraisers try to do ethics, um, it's just with a gut feel about what they feel is right. Whereas if you look at business ethics, there are whole courses on business ethics. There are books on marketing ethics, and we don't have the same in fundraising. Mm. Um, We scrapple with the same issues around regulation, self-regulation that we've always done. You know, although regulation is now done differently, the issues behind that are still the same and a lot of them are unresolved and also how we engage with our critics and our public perception that that is the same now as it was 20 years ago when I came into fundraising and something that's just come up in the past past few weeks is that with virgin money giving um, Mm. virgin money withdrawing on that we've still got that thorny issue of overheads of zero cost fundraising as presenting zero cost fundraising as kind of like the morally correct thing to be doing Mm. which only works for a handful of of sector players if they can find someone else to fund all their fundraising costs for most of us poor sods it's no good for us and so that has been an issue that's been going on for years and doesn't seem to be any closer to being resolved so yeah Although things have changed over that time, there is also a lot of stuff that stays the same. And a lot of the stuff that we are looking at is those issues that they stay the same because I don't think there's enough critical thinking going on about those issues, about what we need to do to to fix them at a fundamental level, not just try and change a few things around the edges. As you say, we're talking today about professional fundraising and fundraising as a profession. Is there a distinction, do you think, to be made between those two things? Well, yes, because uh, professional fundraising, if, if you're a professional in anything, you're talking about it's you're getting paid to do it. So the distinction is with people that don't get paid. So, you know, you know, volunteer fundraisers, citizen fundraisers doing crowd fundraising, stuff like that. They're fundraising, but they're not being paid. So the simple distinction, the simplistic one, is that professional fundraisers are the people that get paid in a job. They come in, they get salaried, or they're, um, they're, they're doing street fundraising or telephone fundraising, or they work for a charity, but they're getting paid to do it. If you're talking about whether fundraising is or is not a professional fundraising as a profession, a profession is a different thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're being paid to do something, but with a, prof- a profession come all sorts of um, accoutrements, all all sorts of things about that, that a professional has that someone who's not a member of the profession would not have. So there's certain characteristics that demarcate what a profession is. It's generally considered, for instance, that you you have to acquire a body of knowledge and pass through an entry process to acquire that knowledge to actually become a practicing member of the profession. So there's certain competencies you have to acquire. You also have what's called professional autonomy, which means you, you act in the interest of your clients. You don't just do what the client tells you to do. 
you can act on their best interest, like a doctor will pres prescribe the, um, the medication or the treatment. They decide the patient needs, not just what the patient is asking for. Right, okay. um, and you also have the right to self-regulate your own members and your standards and your ethics and, and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and you can contrast that by trades, um, and it's not to denigrate trades whatsoever, because tradespeople are highly skilled and um, and well paid, and for the job that they do. But there's a distinction between a trade and a profession, and it's that the tradesperson doesn't necessarily need to know why the things they are doing is, is working. They don't have to look under the the hood to see them to see the theory behind it. So. As a very simple, simple analogy to show how this works, you you don't hire a construction company to come and build your house from scratch. You first hire the architects to design your building because sure. they can tell you what will work, and then you bring in the tradespeople to build it. And there's that's kind of the a very simplistic distinction between trades and professions, and what professions are seen to have, and what trades the way trades work is different. But if I can just say very quickly, what the way we tend to think about professions, the way scholars have done this, is you try and draw a fence around it and, you know, you ring fence it and say, inside this is a profession and outside, if you don't have this entry pathway, you don't have this knowledge, you're not. Another way to look at that is to say that inside the profession, you've got certain special standards. And anyone who wants to say, yeah, I'll be a member of that, I will step in and I will follow, learn, get that knowledge, is a member of the profession. Mm. So distinction between professional fundraisers and a member of the fundraiser profession, if you take a street fundraiser or a telephone fundraiser, they're all professional fundraisers in that they are paid. They aren't necessarily members of the fundraising profession, but some of them might be. Some of them might say, yeah, I will do this. I'll make a career of it. I will make sure I behave ethically, responsibly, learn the standards, whereas someone who's just doing it for a summer job might not bother with that. They're both professional fundraisers, but they might not both be members of the fundraising profession. I'm sure that many of our listeners are fundraising on a daily basis, so potentially part of that professional fundraiser group, whether that's as a paid fundraiser or as a volunteer. I imagine that many won't have a qualification in fundraising. I certainly didn't for the first few years of my fundraising experience. What do you think people and charities should consider when deciding on whether to pursue professional fundraising qualifications? I think that's not the question they should be asking whether I want to pursue a qualification. The question they should ask is, do I have the knowledge, the skills, the competencies that I need to do this job successfully and to the best of my ability? And if not, where can I find that? Mm -hmm. And it may be in a qualification like the CIOF Academy runs. It may be by doing one of the new apprenticeships. It may be just by doing training. So the, the, I think the thing is, is that what do I need to know? What am I missing? And where is the best place to get that? So you said that many of your listeners will already be doing fundraising there'll be volunteers or there'll be professional fundraisers but mm. there's also another question there is what if they're not mm. already doing fundraising how do you get into fundraising how do you acquire the knowledge you need to become a fundraiser so this brings us back to that previous question about a profession almost all professions um, have an entry pathway whereby if you say 
I've decided I want to be a member of this profession, do this job, and you'll go along and ask the careers advisor or you'll go to their professional institute and they say, how do I get into your profession? And say, you do this. This is the course you do. This is the apprenticeship you do. Mm. Fundraising doesn't have that, which is why most people fall into it still because there's no entry pathway. And then they come into it learning on the job. And as you said, you know, you didn't have a qualification until recently, so you learned on the job. And my wife's been a fundraiser for 27, eight, I don't know, a long time, uh, coming up to 30 years. And she's a fantastic fundraiser. She doesn't have a qualification and she really is a good fundraiser. And she learned everything she learned on the job. Mm. The contingency there is you're only as good as the person teaching you. Mm. So you have no control, quality control over over what you learn so i think it's really important that fundraising puts in place this entry pathway for future generations so that if you did this repeated this um, podcast in 15 years time you wouldn't have to ask that question but in terms of the questions that you because all the people coming in would have learned on the way in they've got the skills but in terms of the question you did ask um, what's now i think it's about what am i missing what skills do i need and if the skills they need are they just need to top up their their basic competencies and then you might go for training mm. if what they are saying is i aspire to be a fundraising leader and i need to know this so i can manage people more and know more of the theory then you might want to go towards a cof qualification for example so i think it's it's not having the piece of paper it's having the competencies and the skills that you need to do identifying where your own lack of, uh, of, of knowledge and competencies are and finding the best solution for that. So I remember, as I said, 2015 was a dark year for fundraising with numerous scandals reported specifically about fundraising, but also governance practices too, uh, contributing to changes to how fundraising was perceived by donors, and the public, but also in how fundraising was practiced. Do you feel that the seeming bad practice of six years ago could have been averted if fundraising was more clearly defined and organized as a profession? I think it could have been, but that is a complex, nuanced question with lots of potential ways to answer that and think about it. So the reason I said I think it could have been is nothing to do with individual fundraisers behaving badly. Fundraisers aren't bad people. I think if we'd had people thinking more critically about the issues that their practices and how they might have led to that, Leading up to the crunch point in 2015, when Olive Cook took her life, we would have probably changed the context of things, the context that led to that point in the first place. So to give you an example, uh, telephone fundraising came under scrutiny at that time, uh, and it came under scrutiny for putting, uh, you know, pressure on people in, mm. in phone calls. It was getting a bad reputation like telemarketing does. Uh and part of the reason that was happening was that senior uh, charities um, that were hiring them weren't paying them full value for their work. They were giving them tough targets, not paying them enough. And they were forcing that kind of behavior on the telephone fundraising agencies that was almost inevitably leading to that kind of poor practice. When it was uncovered by the press in 2015 that some telephone fundraising agencies did that, a lot of charities stopped using them and said they don't represent our values. But they absolutely did represent their values. Their values was low-cost, high-volume recruitment, and that's what they'd asked them to do. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's like saying if fundraisers themselves were better members of the profession, 
this wouldn't have happened. I think what it is, is if the profession itself, the fundraising organ, entity of, organ, of fundraising had been structured differently and senior people were thinking differently about, is it the right thing to be doing to be paying the lowest possible cost for donor acquisition because people get upset about overhead costs in the pound. So you need to actually have addressed the overhead issue. You need to have addressed working practices. Um, and we need to, people needed to be having conversations about whether this low cost, high volume um, acquisition method was sustainable or whether it would have led to these things. So as I said, it's a nuanced question because really no one knows what led to that crunch point in 2015. There's lots of hypotheses, there's lots of ideas, but we don't really know what happened about that but my feeling is that a lot of it was structural it was the way fundraising was being practiced it wasn't down to the individual agency of individual fundraisers and I think it'd be really unfair if they were to shoulder the blame for for, for that and I think if in the years running up to that people have been thinking differently about the issues involved around that I think we might have had different outcomes. When I think about fundraising, I think about in terms of the kind of emotional messages, you know, there's a lot of emotion that goes into the conversations that we have with donors or beneficiaries naturally, because I suppose we're trying to, um, in a lot of cases, we're trying to deal with problems, human difficulties and challenges and, and, uh, and draw other people into supporting those um, in terms of donors. Do you think that that lends itself then to kind of a need for more responsibility than other forms of marketing, perhaps? I mean, if, if, if I haven't ever tried to sell cars, this is probably a bad analogy straight away, but if I'm trying to sell you a car, I won't probably, well, maybe, I don't think I'd be tapping the same buttons that I would be if I was trying to ask you to support a cause where, you know, we've got beneficiaries that are in, in uh, you know, dire straits or severe need. Do you think that that then lends itself to a kind of maybe an even heightened sense of need for professionalism in how fundraisers carry themselves and the institutions that are there to support it? Well, that's an interesting question about whether fundraisers should have higher ethical standards than marketers. And the obverse of that is that it's acceptable for marketers to have lower ethical standards than fundraisers. And, and so if something is acceptable, morally acceptable in selling Coca-Cola or a car or tobacco or alcohol, it should be morally acceptable to do that in fundraising. And if it isn't, you should, if it isn't acceptable in fundraising, you shouldn't do it in the, in the commercial sector. I think there should be a common set of stand of ethical standards for, for marketing. And I don't, I think it's unfair to, require fundraisers to have a higher bar for their practices than commercial marketers do because if it's unethical for fundraisers to do it it should be unethical for commercial marketers to do it as well it's about them raising their standards to us not about us having to have behave at a higher standard to them just because we're marketing for for, for good you could almost argue that because I'm, I'm not making this case, it's not sure. what I'm saying, but you yeah. could almost argue that because we're marketing for, for to help people sa save people's lives, to cure disease, we should be able to do things that you can't do if you want to try to sell market mm -hmm. stuff that's going to cause people disease like tobacco or alcohol or, or some something like that. Yeah. Um, 
So I think the thing about emotion in fundraising, I mean, rational cases, you, you put rational cases to people, why they should give, it doesn't work. It's emotion that, that, that works. Mm. And I think the thing is, is that is the, what are the, you can use lots of emotions to get people to give in particular ways. And commercial marketers do it all the time. They, they're very good at, and fundraisers are very good at doing this as well. The best fundraisers know what what donors need states are this is this is um, mark phillips of blue frogs ideas but adrian sergeant and jen shang with their philanthropic psychology the best the best fundraisers are really good about identifying donors motives how they feel how they identify and tapping into those the, those motives those senses needs to belong the, the the needs that they have for giving uh and they're very good at tapping into those and it's a win-win situation um in that context People give more and people feel good about themselves um, for, for giving. It's not just about tapping into a using a negative emotion like anger or guilt to make mm. people give, because probably in the long term, those emotions are unsustainable. They might get you to give in the first place if you arouse a really, you know, oh, this is terribly, this is wrong. I must do something about that. But once you are giving, you'll want to see more positive stuff about how your gift's being used. What can our listeners do to ensure that their fundraising practices are as professional as possible and work towards contributing at least to the perception that funders and beneficiaries might have that fundraising is worthy of being defined as a profession? Well, I probably wouldn't have said worthy of being designed. I, th- I think that just because worthy makes it sound it's got a, a normative moral aspect in that. So I prefer to keep that neutral and mm-hmm. say, what are the criteria you have to do so that you can be deemed as a, as a, as a profession? So, sure. that you can the, so, but I mean, the first one of those, I think, is you have to be competent, you have to be knowledgeable. Uh, that's the very, very least that a member of a profession owes to, their, to the people that are paying for their services. If you are putting yourself forward as a professional supplier of services, but you're not as knowledgeable as you could be, then I think you're behaving unethically as a professional, Um, not to put too fine a point on it. And that's not to blame people for not having the knowledge because most fundraisers come into the profession not having the knowledge. The question is, like you mentioned earlier about the the qualification, is what is the step that you take to acquire? The knowledge and there's plenty of online training that you can do there's plenty you know there's different levels to get that at. so i think you have to be knowledgeable and that's and and not for fundraisers that's not just a duty that you owe to your donors that is a duty you owe to your beneficiaries as well because if you're not as competent and as skillful as you can be at raising money it's not your shareholders that suffer because they don't have such big dividends. It's your beneficiaries that suffer because the quality of their life is diminished if you're not as good a fundraiser as you possibly can be. And I think the other thing to do would be to develop an ethical literacy so that you can you can base your decisions around the ethics of fundraising, not just on gut feel about what you feel to be right, but actually ground that in some, in some proper theory and applied decision making using that theory that's a lot of work we do at at regari and the other one i think is really important is it's a very simple thing that everyone so those other two take some commitment and we take some learning and whatever but the simple thing you do is learn the code of practice learn the code of practice stick to it it's the code of practice in the uk is probably the best one in the world Um, we probably have the best form of regulation in the world 
and I don't want anyone to think I'm totally singing the praises of the fundraising regulator. There are lots of faults and things I would change about our fundraising regulation, um, not least the fundraising preference service, but it, we have to recognise that it's a very comprehensive, very good code of practice. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, the code of practice gives you very prescriptive terms. It's very detailed. You can do this. You can't do that. You should be doing this. And, and there is no excuse for any fundraiser working today not to know what's in the code of practice. And if you don't, I don't think you're behaving like a, like a, a professional. So learn the code of practice and stick to that. And you, if you do that, you've made great strides towards professionhood or individual professional status, I think. This has been a really good uh, conversation, uh, Ian. I really appreciate you, you being on. And I think the some of the takeaways for me is that on an individual basis, listeners can you know, take forward what you've said and go away and, and read the uh, code of practice. They can uh, go online, they can um, educate themselves. And, and maybe this, uh, I hope the podcast is actually a way of at the very least imparting some um, kind of starting points for people, but also to help people understand what they, you know, they don't know what they don't know and, and uh, to give them kind of areas they can start to explore. That's a very good point. You know, I think it's re- realising you maybe don't know what you don't know. But I would also say the person you go and try and get that information from, they may also not know what they don't know. Yeah. So the whole point is it, it's critical reflection. It's critical challenging. And we've learned in the past in fundraising by a kind of copy the case study model. We have people presenting case studies at conferences and say, if you do this, it will work for you. And people go, okay, that's fine. I think it's more important that people keep challenging people saying, this will work for you and say, why will it work for me? What's the evidence that it worked for you? Show me that. And we to, to start increasing our competencies and move towards professional states, we need more people challenging the people that have the knowledge and claim to have the knowledge. When I say claim to have the knowledge, I'm not saying they don't have that, but they are there saying to other fundraisers, you need to do it this way. Mm. And I think sometimes people in the receipt of that information should be said, okay, but show me why I need to do it that way. Give me more of the evidence, show me the theory behind it. So I think, you know, that question about what qualifications, what knowledge you need, sometimes you won't need to do that. But I think we need to get into the mindset more where we do start asking for that kind of stuff and just not accepting that some, when someone tells us this is the way it worked for me and this is how you should do it, we start need to, to challenge those a bit more. Ian McQuillan, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. big thank you there to Ian McQuillan for sharing his insights with us. I'm sure like me this gave you food for thought. It strikes me that as a fundraiser myself I may have been remiss in asking many of the questions that Ian raised. Who have I learned my fundraising craft from? Where is the evidence that supports my assertions about what does and doesn't work in fundraising? How hard have I challenged these assertions? How many of us have explored ethics in fundraising? How many of us know the ins and outs of the code of fundraising practice? These are crucial questions that we must each understand and seek answers to. 
speaking with Ian and touching on some of the fundraising scandals of the past, it reminded me, as it hopefully did you, that we cannot be complacent in how we behave as fundraisers. The world is in constant flux and with many charities struggling to deliver for their beneficiaries and meet their fundraising goals at the moment, the pressure on fundraising and fundraisers is concerning. When it comes to how fundraisers can develop their skills and knowledge and perhaps help to improve the perceptions that fundraising has among those we seek support from, there are currently many paths to take. As Ian said, with many fundraisers, including myself, falling into it, you are only as good as the person teaching you. And at the very least, fundraisers need to therefore develop powers of critical reflection and the courage for critical challenging. The idea of having fundraising as a profession to get a more formal and measurable structure to a fundraiser's training could help to develop fundraising success while addressing inconsistencies in practice and standards that we've seen in the past. It is also for fundraising and charity sector leaders to embrace the idea that fundraising is not just a crucial tool for delivery of services, but that it is also for many the interface that people have with charities. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for our beautiful website, check it out at charitychat.org.uk, Forrester Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now that's it from me keep on doing what you can speak to you soon cheerio bye bye